good morning once again to all of you. So glad you're here. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you will know that we are taking our time this Easter season to go through one chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This chapter is all about resurrection. It's full of good news for the believer, of uncertain, uh, unshakable good news of Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, of Jesus' victory over death and our victory over death, Jesus' eternal life and our eternal life. And as we've already seen in just the last two weeks, this chapter points us to death, I'm sorry, points us to Jesus as death's great conqueror and also as death's great reverser. He doesn't just conquer it and leave death dead and defeated. Jesus does do that, praise God. Jesus also reverses death and all of its power. So for the believer, for the Christian, let me just repeat this. I've said it a couple of times now, but I want to say it again, mainly so that I can get it into my heart. For the Christian, the fact that Jesus is risen, the fact that he is alive forever, means that death and darkness and cancer and war and disease and injustice do not have the final word. Jesus has the final word. We know this because of the empty grave. We will doubt this for sure. We might doubt it a few times a day. And when we do doubt it, we remember the resurrection and we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So, quick review in case you're just joining us. Uh, in our first Sunday looking at this text, we looked at verses 1 through 11. Paul pointed out to us the matters of first importance. That Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus appeared. Last week, our second week in this series, we looked at verses 12 through 19. If Christ had not been raised, Paul told us, if Christ had not been raised, then Christianity is a hoax, every preacher is a liar, every believer is to be pitied, there is nothing to live for, there is nothing to die for, and we're all still in our sins. The reminder last week for all of us was to hold firmly to our central belief in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And to hold firmly then as an inseparable consequence of that to our resurrection from the dead. If Jesus' resurrection is true, ours is true too. We spent a good deal of time last Sunday considering a big what if. It was a disturbing what if, almost a depressing what if. What if Christ had not been raised? And today, as we arrive at verses 20 through 28, Paul is done with all of that what-if stuff, and he comes out of the gate, you can see it, with certainty and with clarity, with the same message as the angel from the tomb. Look with me at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Praise God. But in fact, Christ has been raised. I invite you to see this for yourself in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, starting at verse 20. If you'd like to use a pew Bible, it's on page 961. So if last week's section 
was defined by two words, what if. This week's section is defined by three words, but in fact. You, you can almost feel it. You can feel that Paul is ready to preach now. Paul is ready to preach, but in fact. Say those three words with me with certainty and with conviction, clarity in your voice. You ready? But in fact. Feels good, doesn't it? After all, we talked about last week. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the certain hope that explodes out of Easter. Because Jesus is resurrected from the dead, raised to life, then all who are in Jesus will also be resurrected from the dead, raised to life. Now I know we live very much in a what if world. So what a gift that God has given us, a but in fact gospel. And it's an embodied gospel, literally embodied in his risen son. So our text today, these verses, if we have ears to hear what this has to say to us, it gives us afresh all kinds of gospel certainty. Certainty about Christ. Certainty in Christ, around Christ, through Christ, towards Christ, every direction. That Jesus, the one who died and the one who is now alive forevermore, is stronger than death. We're pointed again today, once again, And these nine verses to Jesus as death's conqueror, yes, and also as death's great reverser. We'll see this progression through our text today as we go through it. Paul tells us clearly what Jesus has done, what Jesus is presently doing, and what Jesus will do. So first, what he has done is this. He has risen from the dead, And then Paul says, because of that, he is what our text describes in verses 20 and 23 as our first fruits. And he's also what our text describes in verses 21 and 22, you'll see it here, as the second second Adam. So first fruits and the second Adam. Let me help us see what this means for us practically. Let me start with that idea of Jesus as the second Adam. It's really good news that there is a second Adam, because we all know the first one. Genesis 1 and 2, he gets off to a pretty good start. He's created. He's enjoying God's new creation. He's naming the animals. And then Genesis chapter 3 comes, and all hell breaks loose, literally. They rebel against God, Adam and Eve do. They listen to the lie of the serpent. Then they bring upon themselves... The just punishment of God and the curse of sin. We are all born originally as Adam's offspring, whether we like it or not. And we probably don't. We are born originally as Adam's offspring. Those who remain Adam's offspring carry within themselves the same bent towards sin and the same bent away from God that we see in Genesis 3. 
We carry that within ourselves as offspring of Adam. And those who are and remain Adam's offspring carry then upon themselves the same consequence of that sin. You can probably finish the sentence for me. The wages of sin is death. Thanks to Adam. Thanks to the first Adam. That's what Paul is referring to in the first half of verses 21 and 22. You can look at them with me. It's who he's talking about, the first Adam. For as by a man came death, for as in Adam all die. But we know the gospel, but God, but in fact, but Jesus. And what Jesus has done is to be our second Adam, praise God. He does what the first Adam couldn't do. He does what the first Adam did not do. And he is our perfect substitute. And he's Adam's perfect substitute in every way. That's what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4.15. Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Jesus' death is substitutionary, yes, praise him for taking our place on the cross as our substitute. Jesus' life is also substitutionary. His obedience in our place. His death in our place, yes, praise God. Also in his life, his perfect obedience in our place. Jesus is the second Adam, the greater and the perfect and the sinless Adam. And then all who trust in Jesus are born again, so they're no longer Adam's offspring. I know that label gets a bad rap, born again. Uh, Depending on your workplace, you may not even feel comfortable telling your colleagues or your employers, oh yeah, I'm born again. Who knows what might come to their mind or what repercussions might come to you for saying you're born again. But think about it this way, born again means you have been given a different spiritual family tree. You used to have a direct line to Adam and all that came with him. Now you have a direct line to Jesus and all that comes with him. He is your second and my second Adam. He's also what Paul describes here as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. And it shouldn't be hard for us to grasp what this means for us. It simply means Jesus defeated death first. Jesus rose from the grave first, and so everyone who follows him will literally follow him. Jesus' resurrection is like the first fruits of a harvest, sign of things to come. To explain what it means that Jesus is the first fruits, Martin Luther used an example of a child being born. And it's a good example. It doesn't quite work for a baby-born breach, but it's still a good example. I'll use it anyways. He says, in childbirth, a baby's head goes first, and then naturally, the body follows. The exact quote from Luther is this. After the head is born, the whole body follows easily. What Jesus has done for us is to be the first fruits of life from death. He came out of his grave, so we'll come out of our graves. He has a resurrection body, so we will have a resurrected body. The head has gone first, so the whole body will follow. Verse 23 tells us how this all works. It puts it out in front of us, each in his own order. 
Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And when the trumpet shall sound, we sang it earlier, and Jesus comes in great power, what happens then? Then he will raise us to be with him forever. The head says to the body, now it's your time. Head goes first, then the body. This past week, you might have uh, read or seen in the news what happened with the SpaceX Starship rocket, largest rocket ever to be launched, the face of the earth. It was up in the air for about four minutes, 24 miles up, it's amazing. And then it exploded. Uh, massive fireball filled the sky. And I learned a new phrase. I'm gonna keep it, uh, use it often reading about this. The spokesman for SpaceX didn't use the word explosion or accident or fireball any of those words that any other person would use to describe what happened. Instead, I'm not making this up, he called it a, quote, rapid, unscheduled disassembly. (laughs) So good. (laughs) Rapid, unscheduled disassembly. Hmm. Catch this. For the believer, because of Jesus, we will experience the opposite of that. Jesus has gone first, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and one day at the final resurrection, in the blink of an eye, we will experience rapid scheduled reassembly. (laughs) Your ashes may have been scattered, your body may have been decaying for centuries, but in the blink of an eye, as soon as the Father says, now we're rapidly reassembled, praise God, and we are brought to where Jesus himself is, bodily, I like how the Christmas carol, once in Royal David City, puts it. I love quoting Christmas carols outside of Christmas season, so you know that they really are good. And this verse says this, And our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. Now catch this. And he leads his children on to the place where he is gone. Are you in Christ this morning? Do you belong to him? Have you put your trust in him? If so, you have that as your certain hope over death, certain hope of real resurrection because you're no longer offspring of Adam. You have a new family line. You have been adopted by God in Christ forever and you are a part of his body and you will follow the head to where he has gone. That's what Jesus has done. Now look with me at what Jesus is doing. Verse 24 gets us into this. Then comes the head. I'm sorry. I was still stuck in childbirth. (laughs) Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's what Jesus is in the process of doing right now. He is reigning. He is putting all of his enemies under his feet. He is destroying currently every rule and every authority and power. And it's good for us to remember this. We need to hear this. At this very moment, Jesus reigns. What he is doing presently is reigning as sovereign king over all creation. He is in the process, according to God's plan and God's purposes, of, as verse 24 puts it, 
destroying every rule and every authority and power. And as verse 25 puts it, putting all his enemies under his feet. I like how the theologian Abraham Kuyper put it. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. That's what Jesus says when he looks at everything, mine. That's what Jesus says when he looks at America, mine. When he looks at whoever is the current occupant of the Oval Office during any presidential term, mine. Our King Jesus reigns over all the nations of the world, over all the peoples of the world, over all the affairs of the world, over every square inch of the world, no exceptions. This world is not spinning out of control as much as it may look like it. This world is under the dominion of its risen king. Jesus didn't rise from the dead in order to retire to heaven. Jesus is not retired. When Jesus ascended to his father's right hand, he didn't ascend in order to rest. He ascended in order to reign. And the reality of the resurrection should assure us as believers of the reality of his reign. I might end up quoting this verse every week in this series, Revelation 118, Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. He did not leave things unattended. He's not sitting idly by while we do our best down here. Jesus is our resurrected and ascended king, and as such, he rules and he reigns from his throne, and he's in the process of destroying every rule and power, putting all of his enemies under his feet. That is reality, but we don't always see it, and we don't always experience it. And so this doesn't mean that we don't weep and wail over the darkness that we see and feel in this world. We do weep. We do wail. Doesn't mean we don't grieve and lament with tears the sickness that we experience in our families or in our own bodies. We lament and we grieve. The fact that Jesus is reigning presently also doesn't mean that we have easy answers. We don't have easy answers. We don't look at the world through rose-colored glasses. We look at the world through resurrection glasses. Is all creation groaning? It is. That's lament, that's reality. Is a new creation coming? It is. That's hope. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. That's the resurrection. And is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. And that's why I'm here to remind you, to remind you of this. What Jesus is doing right now is reigning. And as much as you hate the darkness, Jesus hates it even more. And as much as you weep over the effects of sin and death, Jesus weeps even more. And it's okay and it's good for us as Christians to be able to feel the injustice, the injustice and the wrongness of this world and cry out, will someone please do something about all this? And because Jesus is risen, he answers back, I am doing something 
and I will do something. Now that's a really hard tension to live in. But that is the tension in which we live as Christians. We believe you, Jesus. Because you've risen, because you are reigning, we believe you have done something about all this. And we believe you will do something about all this. And in the meantime, we trust you. We trust you. We may not see it right now, but we trust that our king is not retired. He's risen and he reigns over all the nations, over all the rulers of the world, over every prison cell, over every cancerous cell, over every unborn child, over every prodigal child. Let the resurrection remind you that Jesus is presently reigning as we live in the in-between. That line from the hymn, The Church is One Foundation, it says that the saints, their watch are keeping. They're in this middle period. <laughs> the cry goes up, how long? Soon the night of weeping shall be what? The morn of song. That's because we know finally what Jesus will do. We've considered what he's done, what he is doing, and now what he will do. Verse 26 and on. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now Paul adds a parenthesis here for clarity, for theological clarity for the Corinthians and for us. He just adds little parentheses here, the rest of 27. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, Jesus, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And now he finishes his thought in verse 28. When all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It's a picture of completion. When the mission of salvation and redemption and justice is done, all is complete. That God may be all in all. One day soon, there will be no more funerals. One day soon, there will be no more cancer. One day soon, when the Father says now, and with a blast of a trumpet, Jesus will finally and totally and utterly destroy death. He will do away with death and disease and decay forever. And the permissions that he has granted for now to the devil will be forever revoked. And Jesus will put all things in subjection under him. This is what he will do. And the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, the empty grave, is the proof that this will happen. It's the proof that he reigns over death and he has the power to destroy it. And he's the only one who does. Everyone else, death destroys them. Everyone else, death is very much the final word. Jesus is the only person who dares to look at death and say, no, I have the last word over you. And I proved it on Easter morning. Any questions? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If you're anything like me, I know you love it when you get a front row seat to something good, a good show, a good concert, Maybe just a good seat on an airplane. You get to see everything, the sunrise or the sunset. You love getting a front row seat. So get this. One day, all of you, all of us, will get a front row seat to see, really see, 
Jesus destroy death. I'm not speaking metaphorically. I'm not speaking figuratively. I'm speaking physically. You and I, as children of God, as believers, will see with our physical, resurrected eyes, Jesus destroy death. He will raise us. He'll resurrect us. He'll make sure we all have really good eyes, 20-20 vision, high-definition vision. We'll be resurrected, new eyes, high-def vision. He'll turn to us and say, hey, now watch this. And he will crush the head of the serpent and grind it into the ground. And death will be dead. And we will roar in praise, singing salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Praise and glory, wisdom and strength be to our God forever and ever. The one who has destroyed death. We will see it. You will see it. Front row seat. It's coming. Believe it. Can't wait for it. Amen. We will see it. It will happen. Praise God. At that point, Jesus will look to the Father. He will hand back the reins as he completes his mission of redemption and salvation, and all will be complete. But in fact, Christ has been raised. And because it's true, it means that all of this in between all that we live in in this tension, all that we experience, all of human history is headed somewhere. We have certainty, gospel certainty, all wrapped up in our risen Jesus that he holds all things together and he will lead all of those who belong to him together forever, raised to life with him to the place where he is gone. And so this promise belongs to you and to me from Revelation 21, the next to last chapter of the Bible. He will dwell with us. He will. And we will be his people. And God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Hallelujah. We are going to see the king. So be encouraged this morning, church, because of what Jesus has done, because of what he is presently doing at this moment, and because of what he will do, we can be certain of all of this, just as certain as the sun has risen. Let's pray together. Hmm. Well, Father, we praise you for the redemption of the world, for the redemption of our bodies, for the redemption of all creation through the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus' victory over death on Easter and for his ultimate victory, which is to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Please come quickly and give us faith and trust 
in the meantime. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.